Amen. Please open your Bibles to the book of John, chapter 1. John chapter 1, we'll read verses 1 through 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And this is our sermon text for today. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the living God. Be to God. Amen. You can have a seat. Let's pray. Our great God, you are so worthy of our praise and adoration. You are worthy of our lives to be laid down for the cause of the gospel. You have uh, died and your blood was spilled and you broke the seal via your resurrection and you are the all-conquering king. Riding through this world on the chariot of the gospel and the kingdom of God is advancing everywhere in this world. And we so are filled with joy today that this morning and this evening we get to praise the living God in the face of Jesus Christ who has come down for us. And may you by your grace and truth fill us this morning with the glory of your word that Christ once again might be our supreme and ultimate affection that we might trust him that we might love him and live for him all our days until we go home. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I don't know about you, but I am so glad to be here. Christmas time has such a way of, I don't know, squeezing out some of the most important things about Christmas. Uh, the presents, the concerts, the festivities of during this time of year, um, my own heart just feels kind of the pull away from the true meaning of Christmas and being right here behind this pulpit and in this room, this is where we belong. This is what Christmas is all about. And uh, so I'm, I'm thrilled to be here and I think it looks like we're going to have a white Christmas for the first time in I think seven years, if I'm correct. So all the better. Well, we've been walking through uh, this Advent season, 
the God-man, Christ Jesus. Uh, We've been looking at him as mediator. That's his single office he holds for us in the gospel. That office is broken down, you could say, uh, prophet, priest, and king. That's what we've been looking at the last three weeks. And this morning we come to the incarnation or the God-man, Christ Jesus. Uh, The incarnation of God the Son is the foundation of Christianity. I think it's almost uh, impossible to overstate its uh, significance. Without it, we are lost in our sin and without hope of rescue. No one else was going to come for us, in other words. But with it, with the God-man taking on flesh, we are rescued from sin. And if you can believe it, reconciled to the God of glory. Again, it's hard to overstate uh, the significance of the incarnation. James Usher of Ireland, he I think was the architect for the Irish Articles, which was prior to the Westminster Standards, referred to the incarnation as, quote, the highest pitch of God's wisdom, goodness, power, and glory. Thomas Goodwin, in in classic, if you're familiar with Goodwin uh, and his writings, in classic Goodwin language, he says, quote, when the Son became flesh, speaking of the eternal Son, When the Son became flesh, heaven and earth met and kissed one another, namely God and man. Beautiful, isn't it? That's what the incarnation of God the Son is all about. The glory of God coming for us, heaven and earth, meeting and kissing one another that you and I might know our Creator and our Redeemer. So as Jacob read, We're going to look at just verse 14 this morning, and I have five movements or five progressions I want to walk uh, with you through uh, this single text. So first progression is the divine word, the divine word. John says, and the word became flesh. We'll deal with became flesh in just a moment, but the divine word. Who is this word? What is he? Is a question we have to come with or answer at least when we come to verse 14. So back up a little bit in verse 1 of chapter 1. He says he in the beginning was the word. So John ascribes to the word eternity. He didn't arrive in the beginning. He was already there. So the son is full of eternity. First, second, Again in verse 1, John says the word was God. So John ascribes to him divinity. So he is the eternal son and now he is the divine son. Chapter 1, verse 3, look a little bit ahead. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. So John ascribes to the word, this eternal son, Creative power. He is none other than a creative God. Chapter 1, verse 4. John says, in him was life. 
Life was not given to him. Life is in the Son. So John ascribes to the Son a saiety, self-existence, independence, self-sufficiency. He doesn't receive life from anyone else. He has life in himself and therefore is able to give life, namely to us. Last one uh, in our text in verse 14. John writes, the only Son from the Father. So John ascribes to the word sonship or personhood. He's a divine person. So you take all of what John has said about the word in verses 1, 2, 3, 4, and verse 14. You take all of that doctrine, that theology, and you shove it into verse 14 when you read the word, the word. And so what you get is the word is the eternal son. He is without beginning or end. He is the creator of all things. He fills heaven and earth. And he is the word. That's his name. That's his title. He's given other names in scripture. Image. Colossians 1.15. He is the image of God. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God. Well, this is a name the Son has. He's the Word. And it means that he's eternally uttered by the Father. He comes forth from him. But John says now he's become flesh. <laughs> That's why Bobbing said it's the mystery of all mysteries. Referring to the incarnation. The Word eternally uttered by the Father, now become flesh. So Jesus, in other words, don't press this analogy too far. Jesus is to the Father what speech is to us. All right? Our words reveal who we are. Right? Yes, they do. Jesus, as the Word of God, what? Reveals who God is. That's what it means for him to be the Word. So Charles Spurgeon, or Charles Haddon Spurgeon, says, quote, He is the unfolding of the Father's thoughts. The revelation of the Father's heart. That's why he's given the name the Word. Again, he has other names to communicate other things about him or other truths about him. But the name, the Word, is, means he's communicating to us the Father's thoughts. He's eternally uttered by the Father. He's the revelation of the Father's heart. And that's why Jesus is so exquisite. Remember that conversation he has with Philip? Philip wants to say, show us the Father. And Jesus is like, "Um, if you've seen me, right? You've seen the Father. They're one in essence, as we'll get to later. But this is why Jesus is so exquisite. And here's here's the practical point here. 
we now do not have Jesus in the flesh. So we see him not by sight, but by faith through now what we call the written word. And that is why this word is all about the incarnate Son. That is why this book is so precious. Not because it has for you some Bible reading plan. This book is precious because it matches, this written word matches the incarnate word. It contains him, it illuminates him, it glorifies him, it magnifies him. That's why the Spirit of God wrote it, for the glory of Christ. So, we see here, and the word, he's talking about the divine son, the divine word. Second progression, the incarnate son. The word became Flesh. We're just going to walk through this slowly, okay? Phrase by phrase. The Word became flesh. Uh, the Word uh, assumed, or He took on flesh, a human nature, a body and a soul. You remember in the Gospels when He talks about my soul is troubled, right? He took on a body and a soul, not just a body, but a body and a soul. The term flesh signifies humanity in its weakness. All right. The term flesh describes the depths, in other words, of our Savior's work, assuming to himself aching muscles. Jesus had aching muscles. Did you know that? He's not God in a bod. Okay. He, has, he had aching muscles. He got sore. He took on a body just like ours, saved for sin. Okay. Aching muscles, a troubled spirit. John 13, my soul is very troubled, he says. He got tired and weary. He became what the creeds call God of very, or man of very man. Well, he's God of very God too. But he's man of very man. First John, so the same author of this gospel, writes his epistle. And he says about the word that he could be seen. That should startle you since we, of what we just learned about the word. The word could be seen, heard, touched, and handled. What a stunning claim. You don't handle God. Right? He's God. But the miracle of Christmas, beloved, is that they did. He was held by the very hands he made, born into the very world he created, and slept under the very stars he decorated. Absolutely stunning, the incarnate Son. And what's even more stunning, so footnote here, okay? The incarnation was not the work of the Son alone, right? 
the incarnation, the word becoming flesh, was a Trinitarian work. This is what is so beautiful about our God. The Father, let me just show you this. Go to Hebrews chapter 10. In other words, the Father and the Spirit are engaged along with the Son in the work of the incarnation. The Father, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, Hebrews 10.5, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, so that's the incarnate son, and he quotes Psalm 40, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. He's praying to the Father here. But a body you have prepared for me. You get that? So according to Psalm 40, verse 6, The Father is the one who prepared the body for the Son. The Father's engaged in the work of redemption. The Spirit, we won't turn there, was responsible for the actual formation of the human nature of Christ in the womb of Mary. Luke 1.35. James Usher again. Listen to this. Mary's womb was the bride chamber where the Spirit knit the unbreakable bond between our human nature and his deity. Isn't that beautiful? It was the bride chamber. What we're talking about, here's a million-dollar phrase, is the hypostatic union, all right? That's what we're talking about. That's what John is getting at here in in John uh, chapter 1, verse 14. The hypostatic union, the union of the divine and human, no mixture or confusion of natures, okay? No mixture. Each nature preserves its essential qualities. So the human nature is not deified, and the divine nature is not humanized. Yes. That's the hypostatic union. Each nature retains its own essential qualities or properties, but it's a real union nonetheless in one person. And so the divine word becomes the incarnate word, the the incarnate son, and Hebrews tells us he did this, chapter 2, the reason Christ did this. He took on flesh to be like his brothers in every respect. So that, purpose clause, he might be the merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. That's why he did it. So he could come, be your mediator, your substitute, get you out of the way from God's justice, receive the justice of himself upon the cross. He receives it in its fullness rises from the dead. He puts you now in between you and God and says, look, Father, look, Spirit, the inheritance of our reward, our people, by virtue of me being their priest and taking on flesh. That's Christmas. That's what Christmas is all about. The word becoming flesh. He goes on. Third progression, the dwelling of God. 
The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It would be one thing for him to take on flesh, but it's quite another, in my opinion, to dwell among us. To dwell among us means he lived among us. He lived among sinners and sufferers. Do you ever read the Gospels, beloved, and think to yourself, man, he's hanging out with those people again? Those sinners? I mean, get it together. Hang out with the right people. Jesus touched the diseased. You didn't do that. Jesus put his fingers into the ears of the deaf. He gladdened the souls of the despairing. He laid his hands on the eyes of the blind. He didn't live off on his own, in other words, evading and avoiding those sinners and sufferers. The Gospels tell us, beloved, that he came for the sick, a sickness of sin. And John says here, beloved, the word became flesh. Oh, yes, he did. And also that he dwelt among us. (laughs) The word dwelt is tabernacled. It It should bring to your mind that tent of old that symbolized the presence of God. And so John is saying, Jesus, the very one who inhabits eternity, the very one who inhabits eternity is the true and final tabernacle of God come to dwell, not with the pompous and proud, but with the contrite and those of lowly spirit. (laughs) Such a comforting thought. We have offended him in thought, word, and deed, as the Book of Common Prayer states. Thought, Word indeed. We have failed to live up to the negative commands of the law, and we have failed to live up to the positive side of the law. We have broken the law inwardly and outwardly. And Christmas says, you know what? God has come for you. That's exactly who God has come for. Sinners. Infleshed. Come to dwell with you. You're never out of reach of Christ. Never. You may think you're too far gone. You're not. Christmas says that's who he came to dwell with and to save for his glory. What a beautiful gospel, isn't it? Such a beautiful gospel. We live in a world where it's like, you scratch my back, I scratch your back. And the gospel comes and says, no. Jesus does it all. Well, fourth. Fourth progression. The peculiar glory. The peculiar glory. 
The word became flesh and he dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. There was a glory to Jesus. There was a, there was a glory to him. And John says, I saw it. I saw it. There was a splendor to him, John is saying. There was a majesty. There was a beauty. And I don't know if John has this in mind, but as I was reading in just the progression, He has a glory to him even in his state of humiliation. There's nothing in John's text that, about him rising yet. He hasn't even risen and ascended to his session on high yet. And John says, oh, church, I beheld his glory. Enfleshed. What John is referring to here, beloved, is what theologians call Christ's peculiar glory. It's a glory that belongs to him alone. It's a glory that even the Father and the Son do not possess, for neither the Father or the Spirit, excuse me, neither are fully God and fully man. It only pertains to the Son and flesh. And most importantly, beloved, hear me, this peculiar glory is a glory that allows sinners to see the glory of God and be saved, not consumed. What wonders of wonder. And John says, I saw it. I beheld it. Only in Jesus, beloved, can we have access to sight of and enjoyment of God. Everybody's running around trying to know God in general. And the Christian, you, beloved, you get to enjoy and you get to tell others, you know, I, I know God really and truly. The face of Jesus Christ. It's the most wonderful message you could hear because it is for the ungodly, it is not for the godly. Well, fifth, and our final progression for the morning. He is the only begotten. He is the only begotten. And I'm just going to give a disclaimer here. I am way out of my depths in this term. And I imagine, as are you. John writes... So, in other words, there's a limit to what we can understand as to what it means for the Son to be begotten, okay? So, you might get, I might get done here and think, what does begotten mean again? And that's okay. Uh, what was it? Gregory, early church father, uh, Nazianzus, said um, the, the word begotten should be honored by silence. So, but I didn't think that would work for you. So, um, I'll try to explain it a little bit. John writes, uh, I've seen his glory, we've seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
I think the term only is not the best translation. I like the ESV, but I think we should retain the word begotten. The word only is trying to get at the uniqueness of the Son. Fair enough. The ESV uh, committee didn't ask my opinion, so that's okay. The word is uh, monogamous, uh, only. So it, it means begotten, not really only, monogamous. So it should read this, glory as of the only uh, begotten son from the father. Okay? Well, here's the hard part. What does begotten mean? Okay? I have two points I just want to stress quickly. Begotten means to come forth, to bring forth, to generate. Okay? Here's the two points. Begotten first is the son's personal property. All right? It's what distinguishes the son from the father and the spirit. Remember the term personal property. It's what distinguishes the Son from the Father and the Spirit. And that's the only thing that distinguishes the Son from the Father and the Spirit. It's not that the Father has more authority or more godness or more will. That's not what distinguishes the Godhead. The personal property of being begotten. That's the only thing that distinguishes the persons of the Godhead. Okay, clear? All right. Second term. Begotten is the son's eternal relation of origin. Slash manner of existence. I'll say that again. Begotten is the son's eternal relation of origin. Slash manner of existence. In other words, begotten refers to the way or manner in which the divine essence exists in the Son. So he wouldn't be God the Son if he wasn't begotten. There's another way of putting that. Some brother just said, what? Begotten refers to the way or manner in which the divine essence exists in the Son. It's been said that the Son has divinity in himself, but not from himself. Begotten says the Father from all eternity. Here's the definition. Begotten says the Father from all eternity communicates the one simple, undivided divine essence to the Son. It tells us, in short term, that all of God is in Christ. That's about as brief as I could put it. All of God is in Christ. So, in other words, if the personal property, so begotten actually does two things, which is amazing. Gives us our doctrine of Trinity, actually. Uh, As it stands at a personal property, it's what distinguishes the persons, or, yeah, we'll stay there. But begotten also um, unifies the persons, okay? 
It distinguishes the persons, but it brings them together as one in one essence. And it does that with one term begotten. Okay. Now, that is why, back to the text, John can say that Jesus is full of grace and truth. He doesn't have grace and truth in part. Why not? He's God. He's begotten Son from all eternity. As God, He has grace and truth without measure. He is grace and truth. He's the eternally begotten Son. Told you to walk out of here fully understanding begotten, wouldn't you? Let me, um, let me conclude. I thought long and hard as to why John chose these two words, grace and truth. Here's my answer. Maybe you have yours. Grace and truth perfectly depict our Lord's ministry. With respect to truth, he tells the world and he tells us today that unless you believe in him, you will die in your sin. Our Lord's person and ministry does not tone down truth. He leaves the sinner absolutely undone, that unless you believe in me, he says, you will die in your sin. Do you know what that means? That unless you cast yourself upon Christ, all that you are and all that you've done, you're going to bear the weight of your sin for all eternity because you've sinned against an eternal God. And Jesus says you're going to die in your sin, and he calls it the unquenchable fire. Those are his words, not mine. He tells this world, and he tells us today, the terrible truth. But he also demonstrates, with respect to grace, that whoever believes in me will not perish but have eternal life. You know what that means? That if you choose to trust him, his life and his death, his resurrection, that if you choose to to throw yourself upon him, casting yourself into the ground, into the dust, I have no righteousness of my own. And you come to him as to who he is and what he is. Death will not have the final word. Actually, death, he says, will be gain. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. He's full of grace and truth.
C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Jesus makes everything make sense in this world. Let's pray. Well, our great God, our triune God, who has saved us, and you've come to us in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the cross and the resurrection. We exist for your glory. Do with this church whatever you want to do with us. We do not care. All that we ask is that Christ be fully magnified as much as we can. To him be all the praise and all the glory.